Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, there's a a moment in time where Jesus confronts and denounces religious leaders The story you will recognize most likely if you are given to reading your Bible as you ought. And he denounces these religious leaders, the scribes of Pharisees, as hypocrites. He points out that they were busy tithing their various seeds of mint and dill and cumin. In other words, they would count out one for God and then nine for them, one for God and nine for them, and they were quite pleased with themselves about that task, and they made sure that everyone around them knew what they were doing. But what's interesting and what's bad is that they never got around to doing what really mattered, as Jesus said, things such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. And what I have always found interesting in that passage, though, is that he did not say stop tithing the seeds because it was right for them to do it. They were expected to give a tithe out of all that they had, including as small a thing as the seed for dill. Rather, what made this whole thing wrong is that they managed to miss a point of what the people of God should be and what they should look like. And so he says, these things, in other words, the tithing of the seeds, you should have done without neglecting the other things. And so the result, according to Jesus, which is really all the opinion that matters, right? So in the mind of Jesus, he says, they are nothing but blind and hypocritical guides fit only for hell and God's wrath. In other words, he's very serious about this. So here's the point I want to make, and that is that you can do a lot of right things. You can believe a lot of right things, and you can manage to miss the whole point. And as a result, you fail at everything. Beloved, that is who Saul is. A man who did so many things right, knew so many things that were right, and yet ultimately he was failing. He was under the wrath of God, the judgment of God. He was his enemy, even though he could literally do circles around you with his knowledge of the word. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pick up with that moment of Saul of Tarsus when he was confronted by the very person he was rejecting. So read with me. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22, hear again the word of the Lord. Now Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest, asked for letters from him 
to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting But rise up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate or drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in the vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, that is Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he rose up, and was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be astounded, and were saying, Is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those calling on this name, that called on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this one is the Christ. The Lord bless his word. As I said, we pick back up the story of Saul of Tarsus, confronted by the very one that he was the enemy of, the one that he believed was a fraud. And as anyone who gets confronted by Christ in this way, we find out that it's a very messy experience for him. It's a a very terrifying experience for him. It's even a crushing experience for him, but it's also a wonderfully glorious one as well. What we have here is a man whose whole system was so close to being right, so close. And yet, because it rejected the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it failed in everything. So close, and yet, it wasn't there. 
And this is something you and I have to constantly press, I would argue, upon our own minds, as well as upon the minds of those around us. To reject Jesus and everything else, no matter how grand, no matter how great, no matter how fulfilling it might be for you, no matter how pleasant it might be, no matter how enriching or comforting it might be, it comes to nothing. Everything else will fail if you get Jesus wrong. We must understand the centrality of Christ. The issue in this story is really the absolute necessity of Jesus as Lord over all things, including every atom of your being. To grasp his centrality in all things is is central to your life. It's foundational to true life. And the Bible uses terms that are designed to show Christ's centrality to all things. Just hear these. You know all of these. Jesus is called the true shepherd, and you either belong to him as his sheep or you reject him, and you find out that you are a sheep without any shepherd. He is called the vine, and we are called the branches. And these branches, vitally connected to the vine, will flourish and bear much fruit. But if you reject him and are not truly connected to him as the one true vine, then you are cut away and destroyed. Jesus is called the living water, and those who drink from him shall never thirst. But those who drink from other sources will find that those sources never satisfy, and ultimately they will perish. He is the bread of life, and those of you who eat of him will find yourself satiated and more alive than you ever thought possible. But if you reject him, then your soul will forever hunger and will never be satisfied for all eternity. He is the light of the world. And so to follow him is to have a perfect eternal lamp and light for your path so that you will not stumble. But to reject him is to walk through this life in darkness until God himself casts you into outer eternal darkness. He is a living stone, and all who are attached to him through faith are also made alive and used by God to form a true priesthood and a true temple and are now fellow partakers of his saving work. But if you reject him as a living stone, you shall be nothing but rubble in a construction site, unused and destined for destruction. Now, building off of that living stone, the Bible also uses another term to refer to Jesus, another metaphor, if you will, that he is the cornerstone. This metaphor is a very important image for us to grasp and then consider as to how it relates to how we as Christians ought to conduct ourselves and how we actually view life, how we make decisions, where we place our hope. If you don't know, the cornerstone was the critical stone in the ancient days for building. It had, to get, it had to be the right one. It had to be done right. It had to be absolutely perfect. Because once you set that cornerstone in place, the entire building was built off of it. And so if you got the cornerstone wrong, the building was wrong. I remember at Grace Community Church where I used to work years ago, 
we had these trees growing in the patio and they were surrounded by a brick wall and they were raised beds. And over the years, the tree's roots had caused it to crack and crumble. And so they hired a a bricklayer, stonemason, whatever you call them, uh, to come and to repair it. And so he took away all the brick, and, and I would walk back and forth from my office to the other offices um, on the other side of the campus, and I would do this multiple times every day. And so I saw him, and I watched him take it all apart. And then for one solid day, I watched this man do nothing but work on just a few bricks at the one corner And all he did was constantly measure and check level and measure and check level and measure and check level. For in the whole day, he was messing around with just a few bricks. And I was thinking, oh my goodness. One, I thought, no wonder my wall always falls down. Uh, That's the first thing I thought, because I never spent that much time. I just slapped him down. But what amazed me was how long it was taking. I was thought, this guy will never get this job done. But what stood out to me was that once he got that right, the rest of the wall came together in just moments. But he had to get that right. And he wasn't going to move until it was right. That's the same concept of the idea of the cornerstone. Once you set in place, the rest of the building will be built off it. You get it wrong and everything goes wrong. In fact, the prophet Isaiah talks about this cornerstone, when you, uh, that there would be a day when Yahweh would lay a choice, costly cornerstone in Jerusalem. And the one who believes in this cornerstone, so we're not talking about a stone, we're talking actually about something greater than just a rock that Yahweh would lay. But the one who believes in this cornerstone, he says, would be safe and that this cornerstone would bring forth justice and righteousness and it would then be established and would flow forth from Jerusalem like a river. In Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, King David talks about this specific cornerstone and he writes about how the spiritual leaders of Israel would look at this specific stone and reject it as not being the right stone, the good stone. It would be not sufficient for what they think is needed. Unfortunately for them, that stone that they would reject as the builder, who should know better, because as the builder, they should be able to recognize this is the stone, the right stone, But as the builder, they would reject this stone. Unfortunately for them, God had said that is the chief cornerstone. In fact, he goes on to say that this cornerstone was not of man, but of God. The stone would not be, in fact, what a human would choose. But it was what God chose to be the chief cornerstone. And what we find in the Bible is that Jesus picks that up in the Gospels, and he says, I'm that cornerstone. It's him that it was talking about. And he shows that because the leaders of Israel, who were the supposed master builders, who should have recognized him for who he was, rejected him, 
so too they would be rejected by Yahweh. In fact, keep your finger here and just go back to Luke. Luke 20, just, it's a few pages. Luke chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. Now, he has just finished a parable about a vineyard that was an image of Israel and rejecting their Savior and how the, the, the ones sent by God had been rejected and killed by the people in the vineyard. And it was all about judgment. And, and these leaders of Israel knew he was talking about them. And they said, this is wrong. This may it never be. So Jesus just looked straight at them in verse 17. And he said, what then is this that is written? And he takes them to Psalm 118. He says, that stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Now Christ gives commentary on that passage. He says, so everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it, on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. So he says, okay, you don't like the vineyard story. How about this? What about this chief cornerstone that the builders rejected? It's going to become that stone. And he says, and anyone who stumbles over that is going to be ground into dust. They will be crushed. Beloved, that's the situation that this man Saul finds himself in, and maybe some of you in this room. You see, Paul, Saul, I'm going to keep calling him Paul, but he's Saul right now. Saul is not stumbling over the Christians. That's not his issue. We know from the book of Acts that the Christians had done nothing wrong. They were a good people, a kind people, a winsome people, they did good to their fellow man. It wasn't that he was offended by them and he's like, we're just going to go kill him. The problem was that Saul was stumbling over the cornerstone, Jesus. It was over Jesus that he tripped and fell. And that's very key for you all to remember in your evangelism. Do not, do not let have the people you talk to stumble over you, in other words. Don't let them stumble over your foolishness. Do not let them stumble over your obnoxious behavior. Do not let them stumble over things that are foolish about you. Let them not be able to speak evil of you. Let them stumble over Christ. Just Christ. It's enough. That is a harsh reality that all people find out in one way or another, that they will either view Jesus as Lord to be a source of stumbling or perhaps just foolishness, but they will hear about Jesus as Lord and be called to come and bow before him and worship him and follow him and repent and see him as the true God, and they will either trip over him or they will call him foolishness. In other words, they will see him and this might be you, they will see him as a treasure, but not the treasure. You guys know the parable of the treasure in the field, right? The man's walking through the field, and he stumbles upon a, a hidden treasure that's so great 
that he, it says that with joy, with great joy, he went and sold all that he had that he might obtain the field. In other words, the point is, and that the treasure in this parable is Christ. And the man has no problem selling everything. Think about all the things you possess. As you get older, you just end up acquiring more and more possessions, right? Think about your, your vacation property. Think about your retirement. Think about your investments. Think about all of the things you've got tucked away here and there for the rainy day. Think about your car, your lawnmower, your, your workshop, your, your kitchen, whatever it might be. In fact, open up every single junk drawer that you have in your house that you've got stuff that you, you, you're, if you're like me, you just got stuff you keep because you don't really want to throw it away, even though you have absolutely no use for it, right? They're, but they're, 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 there's memories attached to them. There's things that bring, you look at and you're like, oh man, I was skinny back then. You know, whatever it might be, but they're your treasures, they're your baubles, they're all the things that are you. Is Christ worth selling all of that and getting rid of it if you can gain him? The way God works it, beloved, is he makes it so that Christ is so supreme, but it requires you, all of you, to have him. But when you see Christ as the chief cornerstone, as you see him as the true treasure in the field, as the pearl of great price, it costs nothing to you. It means nothing. With great joy, you divest yourself of everything that you count as precious so that you might have him. But if you are only willing to add him to your treasures, he will crush you. He will reject you because you actually rejected him for what he is and who he is. Like Saul, many see him as somebody to love, but not to love above and beyond all others. Jesus says that you are to hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and instead love him above them all. People say, I can't do that. Then you have no Jesus. It's not an option. He will not and cannot be second best. And so in the end, because of who Jesus is, that cornerstone, who is rejected as the cornerstone, and merely relegated, hear this, merely relegated to become a stone. Maybe a very nice stone, maybe a very prominent stone in their life, but he's not the chief cornerstone. They end up stumbling over him, they, are fall, they fall, and they are scattered like dust for all eternity. But then the grace of God comes into play in this story in Acts 9. As it says in Ephesians 2, but God, right? But God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked in accordance to the power of the prince of the air. We were, we were sons and daughters of disobedience. We were children of wrath even as the rest. But God, but God, rich in his mercy, But this great love made us alive together with Christ Jesus. For by what? Grace, you are saved. 
Everything changes when the grace of God comes. And then all of a sudden, that which you reject becomes precious. That which is folly becomes wisdom. That which you hate becomes the essence of what you love. We pass then from death and we go into life. And that's the story of Saul. Now, last time we were in this passage, we saw Saul as who he was. He was a Roman citizen by birth that conveyed him many good things. He was raised in a city called Tarsus, which is a center of learning and great knowledge. He was a Jew, but he was also not just a Jew, but he was a Pharisee, very, very serious Jew. Not just a Pharisee, though, he was the type of Pharisee that would persecute the church as blasphemers. And so while he's on the way to the city of Damascus to go find and jail men and women who were believers, he then became, amazingly enough, a Christian. And so in verses 1 through 9, what we saw was that he was confronted by the living, resurrected, and glorified Jesus. And it was absolutely shattering to him. It destroyed him. He was shattered by the event, and the event was so important in the mind of Luke that he actually records it three different times in the book of Acts. This was a man who was hell-bent on stopping the movement, and he was willing to walk 135 miles on foot to do so. We don't even walk a block to go to the store. And this man will go for days for the sole purpose of finding these people and crushing them. And in the process, Christ comes to him. In a great light, he struck blind by the vision that he had of Jesus, and we see that in verse 8, which was likely an act of judgment. In fact, Saul... Now he is called Paul in Acts chapter 13, verse 11. He confronts another man, and we'll get to that in time, who hated the Christians and Jesus. And Paul told the guy, he says this, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. To show that he was who he was, that, that Christ was the Lord and, and God, he says, you are rejecting him, and therefore you will be struck blind. And I think probably that's what's happening here, is they seize him for who he is, and now he is struck blind by that vision. And though he was blind and he's humbled to the extreme, he now believed. He now saw Jesus for who he was. God in flesh, the promised Savior. And so as a result of that, he obeys his new Lord and the command to go to Damascus and wait. And that's where we pick up on this wonderful conversion story. And so picture it like a movie, and now the, the scene fades to black. The last we see him is that he is in the state of humility, being blind. He's blind, and his friends are gathering and holding his hand, and they're now leading him toward the city. Likely, this all occurred very close by. And now the scene rises now upon a new man. His name is Ananias, and we see him in verses 10 through 12. We don't know much about the man. We do know in one of the other stories of this account in chapter 22, verse 12, that he's described as a devout man. 
and that he was well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. But he was the one that Jesus chose sovereignly to receive Paul, or Saul. And we see his devoutness in his response to the vision, because when the Lord speaks to him in this vision, he says, here I am, Lord. He's ready, he's available, and we see this humility in him. He knows who is his Lord, he's willing to obey, he's hearing it, and the rest is history, as they say. Well, he's told in verse 12 to go to a specific house in Damascus to find Saul. He's assured that Saul is actually waiting for him, for the Lord had given Saul a second vision that some guy named Ananias is going to come and let him see. And in verses 13 to 16, what we find is core to this message today. We find out that God's ways are very different than our ways, very different. Here's the dirty secret, though, for you. You usually think otherwise. In fact, many of you right now think otherwise. We will say with our lips, God's ways are not our ways, but we don't really believe it. We often think we know his ways. And the longer we live, we learn how God has a way of flipping things on their head. Have you not experienced that in your own life? How many of you are where you thought you would be at this point in your life? How many of you have had all the things happen to you that you thought would be? How many of you thought that somebody you love would be around a little bit longer and they're gone? How many of you thought that you would be in a certain position in life or place in life or that your children would turn out a certain way or whatever it might be, and it's not that way? Your whole life is literally something that you didn't expect. It is very rare for anyone to ever say, this is exactly how I planned it, and it all worked out perfectly. We find out that God flips things on their head, and we find it's done in the most head-scratching of ways. We find our life planned out. We often have our life planned out in the most general terms, at least, but some people have it laid out very, very carefully. And behind all that, we assume we know what is the best way, right? Or at least the right way. Isaiah records the words and the heart of the Lord in Isaiah 55, 7 through 9. These are actually Yahweh's words given to Isaiah. Yahweh says, let the wicked forsake his way, let the righteous, unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to Yahweh, And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, why? Why will one who is a wretched sinner in rebellion doing all the things wrong? Some of these people are are people raised in the Christian home, being told the way of life, being called to repentance, and they mock mom and dad, they laugh at them, they reject them, and they run hell-bent away from the gospel. They don't want it. They got it figured out. They'll do it their way. They know better. On and on and on. We see these things work themselves out. And yet he says that he will pardon them if they will come. Why? Why will he do that? Why would he take somebody who spits in his face and is his enemy and his rebel and everything else that's wrong? Why would he do it? He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. That's not how you would do it. Some of you still haven't perhaps forgiven people. You just need to forgive. 
because you've been forgiven in Christ. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. He goes on, he says, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. My question is, how many of you really believe that? We see people, and we often think that they're simply too far from the mercy of God. They're too far gone. They're too hateful. They're too wicked. They're too vile, too arrogant, too hardened. And then we're foolish and actually think that others are close to the kingdom of God. Oh, they're, 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 they're really close. They're almost saved. We assume that we can look at the circumstances and we, we can read those circumstances going on in their life and assume that, uh, read them like a diviner reads tea leaves in the bottom of a cup. And we start thinking, oh, God's going to use this cancer to soften their heart and they're going to come to faith. Have you not said things like this in your own mind? Uh, God, God is, is, they're asking more questions. I think God's moving them toward himself. I think, I think he, he's going to come to faith. This is exciting. Pray, pray, because I see really a softening in him. And meanwhile, you don't even think of this person over here because they're so far gone. There is nothing in them that's hoping in Christ, no interest. But that doesn't fit the, Saul, the story of Saul, does it? There's no softening in this man. This man is literally breathing threats for 135 miles on foot about what he's going to do to those Christians, and the next second he's a believer. My ways, God says, are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're far higher, and I do things not the way you think I should. Ananias is a godly man. He's a devout man, but he's, he is confused, just like you and I would be. He knows the exploits of Saul. He, he, he knows he's an enemy of God. He knows he's an enemy of the church. He knows why Saul had come to Damascus, and it was not to find Jesus. Not in the slightest, no interest in Christ. He was not there to find forgiveness. And so Ananias, as they would say in the south, bless his heart. He actually thinks he needs to clarify a few things for the Lord here. Oh, you mean Saul. The Tarsus Saul. Lord, are you aware why he's here? I mean, he, he, he's not here because he heard of a revival going on here. He's, he's not here because he's burdened by his sin. In fact, I don't think he thinks he's a sinner. In fact, he's pretty arrogant. In fact, he is looking to kill us. You, how many of you prayed that way? How many of in your prayers, you are explaining to God details that you think he needs to understand before he acts? 
Let me tell you, I've been doing this a long time, and I've sat through many a time of prayer, and I've listened to the prayers where, Father, um, we pray for Edna as she gets ready to go see the doctor, and we just pray for wisdom for the doctor because they really need to be able to discern what, what's wrong with her. And, and Father, I pray that you might bring to mind to them the miracles of the grapeseed oil that they're recently discovering in South America, and maybe that might be of help to her. And then, Father, we also ask him that she would just do this, and, and this, these things would happen. And it's almost as if in her brain, as we're supposedly praying, that God, where we picture God up there seated with a little notepad saying, I didn't know about the grapeseed oil. Okay, we'll, we'll look into that. Oh, so you're saying they need wisdom when they look at her. Ah, good point. I'll note that. That's how you pray. You and I, we're like Ananias. We literally think we know the way, and we're going to let God know this is what we need. We're fools. That's like, in a small way, when, when your dear daughter or granddaughter, grandsons are okay, but granddaughters are obnoxiously sweet. And so they kind of squirm their way into you. And, and you know, they're there, and they're, they got the tears, and uh, Papa, uh, I, I this, and can I have, and I'm just really hungry, and, and, and they think that, and we think, yeah, you've been disobedient. No, you're not getting that dessert. But, but Papa, I've spent a bad day and it would really make me happy. Yeah, and it's good that you're unhappy. You should be unhappy, right? We're unimpressed. Hopefully, if we're good, we're a good parent or grandparent. We're, we're not impressed by all of those shenanigans that are manipulations. We're, we're going to instruct them in the way of righteousness. Christ himself in the garden, he says, I don't want to go through this. If you're willing, let this cup pass from me. But he doesn't get into all the details of why. He doesn't need to. His father knows. What does he say? Such a simple, short prayer. Let this cup pass before me, but not my will, but yours. Father, I love my wife. I don't want to die. If you're willing, heal this. If not, your will be done. Which is better, that or grapeseed oil? And we do it all the time. We keep thinking that we know better. This is Ananias. He needs to clarify a few things. (laughs) And God says, I know. So Jesus tells him again, go. But he gives Ananias a couple pieces of information that helps him understand. He says in verse 15, notice, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He's a chosen instrument of mine. In fact, he's going to speak my name, bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the sons of Israel. All three of those happen, and we'll see him unfold in the book of Acts. He speaks to the Gentiles, the Jews, and the kings. So much is packed into this little verse, though. It speaks 
simply of the sovereign choice of God rather than the supposed free will of man that we're in love with. This whole story actually is one of God's sovereign intervention in this man's life. God chose him. He is my elect vessel. Paul certainly didn't choose him. Paul wanted to destroy his people, but God stopped him in his tracks. No hint here of of Jesus confronting him on the path and saying, Saul, Saul, if only you would let me into your heart, I might save you. If only you were willing, I could fix all of this. None of that. He simply says, why are you persecuting me? And then go. And he converts this man in a moment. But here's what I want you to note. That word instrument, some of your translations might say vessel. It's actually a word that Paul picks up in his letters. On several occasions, he uses it. I want you to look at one. So keep your finger here and go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he uses this exact same word in the, in the same way. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 Paul says, but we, as Christians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That word vessels is the same word my translation uses as instrument in Acts, but same word. Yours might actually even say something like a clay pot. What is this treasure? Well, what he is saying is that Jesus is this treasure. Verses 1 through 6 is all about the gospel is the glory of Christ. It's all about Christ. And he says that Christ is this treasure that we have. But what did God put this treasure in? You tell me. An earthen vessel. Do you know what he's talking about? It's a clay pot, but do you know what he's really talking about? He's talking about what in the old days, they called a chamber pot. Today, we call it a toilet. That's you. And that's me. We're toilets. That's not how you view yourself. None of us do. That's offensive. And Paul says, we have this treasure in a clay pot, a, a, a simple pot used for human waste. That's what we have this treasure in. A toilet. Unfit vessels that have no business at all carrying about in us Christ. And yet we do. We have it not because we're fit vessels. How often do we spend our time cleaning up the toilet, painting the toilet, bejeweling the toilet, regaling the glories of the toilet, calling it everything but the toilet, and yet it's still in the end a toilet. And God said, 
I will place this treasure of Christ in you, but you're just a toilet. Why? Why would he do that? Why, why does he use that kind of language? Notice verse 7. Circle, underline whatever you need to do, the word that or so that, because it references the purpose. We have this treasure in toilets, in earthen vessels, in clay pots, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will, or of the power will be of God and not ourselves. This that reflects a purpose. God's surpassing greatness of power would see, be seen as God's and not ours. Like the children's song goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him they little ones to him belong. They are weak and he is strong. They are toilets and he is glorious. One of the most common tasks a pastor has is one, to humble himself before the Lord, and two, to humble his people to get them to begin to grasp what they are and then the glory of Christ. Paul tells the Corinthian church, who is all about their own giftedness, their own wisdom, their own abilities, that in reality they are simply toilets to the glory of God. Put that on a bumper sticker. Make that a meme. And he did so so that God's glory would be seen, not us. He did so so the treasure would be manifest, not us. So notice what he does in verses 8 through 11. He goes straight from this, this statement that's very hard for us to grasp to suffering. So he says, so that the power will be of God, not of ourselves. How does that look? What does that look like? In our thinking as Americans, we're going to think of something glorious, something triumphant, something that we're really doing great things, of works of power. This is the kind of stuff that, that you have a faith healer and the new apostolic reformation movement teachers, and they'll glom on this and they'll talk about all the great powerful things that God's going to do through them. This is what he means. Persecuted, or I'm sorry, innate, in every way afflicted, but what? Not crushed. Why? Because the power of God is manifest, but we are afflicted. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. What are we? We are always caring about in the body of the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made known or manifested in our body. Why? For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That is not a message that sells. Come to Jesus so that you might be constantly delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So Paul says of himself, death works in us so that life in you. What he's describing really is what is said here in Acts 9. So turn back there. 
Beloved, many of you in this room, you're happy to serve Jesus in strength and health. How many of you are truly happy and content to do so in weakness? How many of you are willing to serve Jesus, understanding it means that you carry the sentence of death wherever you go? How many of you understand that you are then caring about the body of the dying Christ? Because you are looking to the resurrected one. So with that in mind, go back to our passage. And I want you to see how it gets worked out in Saul's life. The first reason Saul is going to be saved, or has been saved, is because he's his chosen pot. Second is Saul is destined to what? In verse 16, suffer, just like we read in 2 Corinthians. He's my pot, and now what I'm going to do is teach him how much he must suffer. Harold, I'll pick on you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. He's called you to be his own broken clay chamber pot. And the wonderful plan he has for you is that you will suffer for his name's sake. Love you, brother. That's the gospel. And out of that comes life. And out of that, the glory of Christ is seen. And we're constantly waiting to obey and to function and to live when we stop being weak. And Christ keeps making us weak. And some of you just fight that. And you berate yourself. I'm so weak. Well, of course you are. You're a toilet. That's all. Christ is the strong one, not you. And he never designed you to be the strong one. You are designed to be weak so that his power would be manifest, not you. The good news of Jesus Christ, according to Christ, involves suffering. This is a man not being plucked out of the midst of his own rebellion and hatred so that he can have a life of comfort. He was being plucked out of a life of rebellion so that he might have suffering for the name of Christ. Just like he described to the Corinthian church. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I want to devote actually an entire sermon on this subject of suffering and trials in the life of a Christian. But it is worth noting in verse 16, that little word must, must. One of those words you'll just pass right over. They're just filler words, but it's not. With Luke, when he uses that word, it's the Greek word day, D-E-I, day. It is of necessity, and he uses it in reference to divine necessity. It's in accordance to God's will and plan. The sufferings, in other words, are not by accident, but it's by divine appointment. Doesn't that change when you get your, when you get your, suffering that whatever it might be, 
Does, does that not help maybe for you when you're suffering for the sake of Christ, you're being faithful and, and the brick hits you on the back of the head and you're down for the count that you can understand that it was by divine appointment? It wasn't a mistake. He rebukes the person who suffers for being a troublesome meddler, right? Peter says, let none of you suffer for being a troublesome meddler or a thief or a liar or whatever. But insofar that you suffer for the name of Christ, rejoice because you're blessed. When was the last time you said thank you? Thank you for the suffering. For I'm blessed. It's not by accident. God chose this man to be a vessel, a clay pot, a toilet. And as a clay pot, he would suffer because God had decided he would suffer. That's sovereignty. And for what basis of this suffering must he do for the sake of Jesus Christ, for his reputation, for the gospel? And because the gospel goes forth not in power like you think it should, but in the weakness that is in fact the power of God, in other words, the clay pot. The gospel goes forth because you're a clay pot faithfully displaying the power of God in Christ. Verse 17 to 22 then. So Ananias departs and goes and finds him. Ananias heals him, and the next thing that happens is he baptizes him. Why? Well, because he's a believer. That's why. This is a Jew. He had been circumcised. He carried that covenant mark as a Jew, but he was not an actual Jew in the truest sense because his heart was dead in sin. Now that he is a believer, he needs to be baptized, so he is immediately baptized. I want to talk more about this as well, so I plan on giving a week or two on this issue of baptism, specifically believer's baptism, so we'll pass by at this time. He next is filled with the Holy Spirit. What's that talking about? Well, it's not talking about the indwelling of the Spirit that all of us as a Christian have, that we have the Spirit in us. It's not talking about what many people will call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What it simply means is a divine empowerment by the Spirit for a task. And for him, that task is to be a preacher of the gospel as an apostle. That's what he's empowered to do. That's why he was filled with the Spirit. It's a unique empowerment to do a task. What's cool here is that then we read that he took some food, he was strengthened, and for now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. What a crazy time that must have been. Hey, John, I got a guy coming over. I want you guys to open up your home to him, make certain that he's made to feel welcome, feed him, give him rest food, nourishment, speak of the good things of Christ. Just have fellowship. Okay, and his name? Oh, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, right? How awkward that initial time must have been. You know, that, so, you know, not sure I want him sitting next to me. But you know what? You come to faith, you come to Christ, and those who were enemies are now brothers, now sisters, Look around you. How many of you would hang around the people that are in this room if it were not for Christ? What makes the church so glorious is how diverse it is. 
But that doesn't last even long. It says, immediately he begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So he begins to preach. Why? Because he has been filled with the Spirit. He's empowered. This is what he's called to do, and he cannot silence that. Notice his subject was very simple. It was Jesus. It was not three steps to a happy marriage, 14 steps to obedient children, 16 steps to financial freedom, and all the other things that we see and hear in churches. It was Jesus. And the place he did this was in the synagogues to his fellow Jews, which must have blown them away. Because this is a man who's supposed to hate Jesus and is rightly persecuting those who claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And now he's in the room with them and he's up there preaching to them that in fact he is the son of God. To say that he is the son of God means that Paul is saying that Jesus is equal to God because he is God. There's no playing around for that with a Jew. To call Jesus the Son of God is to either be a believer or to be a blasphemer. What's horrifying is that if that's true, then they crucified the Son of God. And he's very clear in verses 21 and 22. He's very clear with this new message he preached. The people are stunned. All those hearing him continued to be astounded. They were in a continuous state because he kept showing up. He didn't, he didn't stop until he had his life threatened. And we'll get to that the next time. This is the guy who hated Jesus and now is preaching Jesus. They knew why he had come, and now the Jews are confused. Why? Well, because he's not being subtle. We, we like to be subtle. We like to be clever in our words. We, we like to tell ourselves, see if this is you, just consider it. We like to tell ourselves that we're slowly bringing a person along with the gospel. We're building a relationship with them when in fact we're just avoiding the gospel. I remember Matt in our church years ago and he, he asked for prayer for his father who was not a believer, and just said, pray, pray that he would come to faith, pray that I would have opportunity to share the gospel. And he asked this for years. At some point, what comes to all of us is death. And his father was on his deathbed. He was dying, and he's desperate. He's like, pray, pray, please pray for my father. Uh, he needs Christ. He needs to come to faith. And I finally lost my patience, and I asked the guy afterwards, I said, have you actually shared the gospel with him? Well, I've been looking for an opportunity. How many years did you need an opportunity? Was he like standing with an armed guard outside his door, and he would shoot you if you walked up to tell him about Jesus? Is that not true of some of you, perhaps, that you're still waiting, you're still trying to establish the opportunity? When what you need to look at a person, you don't have to be a jerk about, but you need to tell them, believe, this is Christ. For Saul, the message was very straightforward, and it was very powerful as a result. They were confronted, and they were confounded as a people because they were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And so what they would do is raise an argument, and he would tear the argument down. Why and how? Well, he was proving that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And he was able to do that through the Old Testament that talked about the coming Messiah. Now, how, how could he do that? How 
was it that he was able to do it so well? Well, simply because he knew the scriptures. Now, he was a Pharisee in his former days. And as a Pharisee, he would have likely had the whole of the Old Testament memorized. As a non-believer, memorized the whole Bible at that time, the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament. But knowing that scripture, even by heart, was not sufficient until the Spirit of God opened his eyes to what it said. Up to that point, it was just information. And that's true of all of us. How often have we heard passages over and over again? And then one day, it all of a sudden, we're hearing a sermon or we're reading or, or whatever, and, and it's like, I never saw that before. How, how, how can I see this passage that many times and it never clicked? Well, because the Spirit works with his word. Beloved, all I can tell you as a pastor is train your children in the word. Make them memorize it and don't give them any wiggle room. Make them memorize it. Make them read it. Read it over and over and over again. Make the word of God central to all things that you do in your home, all things you do in your life. You should be able to live in such a way in your life that everything you do is, is conformed to the word of God. So that at any point, your, your kids can say, why do we watch that show, Dad? Why do we spend our money that way, Dad? Why do we dress this way? Why do you not allow that? My children, my daughters hated me when they would get dressed, and I knew something was always up if they were moving by me after they went upstairs to get changed, and they were moving by me fast. I'd always say, come back here. And, and they'd come <sighs> And the first thing I would do is say, raise your hands up. And they hunch their shoulders like this. I'm like, raise your hand up now. And if I saw any skin upstairs, and that, that shirt goes away. But dad, it's new. Well, then you shouldn't have spent your money on it. That was your stupidity. You knew I wasn't going to let you wear that. What's the big deal? It's just a little bit of skin. It's not modest. Nobody needs to see that. There's only one person who needs to see that part of your body, and that will be your husband, and no one else. You're called to be a modest. Doesn't matter what it is. We have to have a reason for why we do what we do, and it better be the word, and we need to train their children in that. You say, yeah, but they're not a Christian. Doesn't matter. It doesn't mean they're going to come to faith as they're built around this world of the word, but it does mean that you give them the source of truth from which life is best explained. And if and when God is pleased to save them, they now have this massive repository of truth to draw from. That's Paul. He, he's only been saved a few days. How is he able to confound people? Because he still knew the scriptures even as an old uh, as an uh, unbeliever, and now he's being used by God. In 20, verse 22, the second reason he was able to do it was because he was being strengthened by God. That term is used by Paul himself frequently to talk about this inward empowering of the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that as we are obedient to the task of following him and proclaiming him in the gospel, that he won't abandon us. He will empower us. But I want you to note something. Paul did not wait for the strength first and then speak. And that's what you and I do, right? We're still waiting. We're still waiting for that time. No, he went and spoke, and he was in the state of always being empowered as he spoke. 
So let's tie all this up. Three simple points here real quick. First, we see here that a person can be very passionate and very sincere and very thoroughly committed to his life and choices before coming to a faith in Christ. Saul was not in any way embarrassed by what he was doing. He was not embarrassed for his hatred. He had no regrets of doing what he was doing by way of persecution. This was not a man who was shamed by his thoughts, and there was nothing in him that was praiseworthy, but he wasn't ashamed of that. Certainly, there was nothing to commend him to God to be saved. He was just busy, happily doing what he was going to do with all of his heart. All Saul brought to the table was the sin. All the gifts of intellect and skill he was born with came not by his abilities, but by God's grace, and he used it for evil. And the same is true of each one of us. You think highly of yourself, then you are not saved. You don't come to God thinking you're going to do him and his kingdom a favor. But you also are likely living your life without a lot of shame because you're going to do it your way, just like Saul did. Second, what you see here is the sovereignty of God in salvation. Saul is literally knocked off his feet and blinded by God. No pleading by God so that Saul would let him save his soul. This is simply a man, an enemy of his creator, confronted by his creator, and he's overcome by his creator's power and grace. It was God who ordained the method, the place, the time, the result of the confrontation, not Saul, some of you perhaps have said this, I'm not ready yet. You ever hear that from people? Maybe from your own lips, I'm just not ready yet, mom. I'm I'm not ready. When I'm ready, I'll come. No, you won't. No man will come unless the Father draws him. Today is the day of salvation. It was God who ordained his salvation. And it's true of you as I as well. Third, the grace of God is both radical and amazing. As a hymn goes, he saved a wretch like Saul and like you. You may think you are, some of you here who are not a Christian, you may think you are far from God because you have done wicked things. You are infinitely far. And let me tell you something, you are. On your own, you are infinitely far from God and and under his wrath. And you may think that maybe if you try hard enough that he'll let you come to him, but you will never be able to prove yourself. What saves you is never your effort, but the sheer beauty of the undeserved grace of God toward a wicked sinner. Come to him through Jesus with nothing but your sin in your hands and in your heart, and you will find grace in life. You come to him on your terms, and you will lose every time. God does not clean you up a bit and brush you off to go back into your life. God's grace radically transitions you from a sinner to a saint. He changes you from one who belongs to this fallen age to one who is now fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, the, the Saul who was preaching and breathing threats against the church 
is not the same Saul who's now in the synagogues preaching Christ. Something radically changed in that moment. The point is you never can encounter God's grace and remain the same. And if you do, then you've never encountered the saving grace. The grace of God will always change you. Well, next week, or next time, we will reflect on verses 23 to 31 and the nature, this will be a fun sermon, the nature of suffering as part of the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, help us to see this. Help us to see, one, that your gospel is so powerful it can take a man full of hatred and then the split second change him. Open our eyes to the need to be people of the word, to not lose hope, to learn to pray and to accept your will, to be diligent and radical in what we say, but that it's always pointing to Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would take the sinners and convert them and that those who have been converted, that they might be strengthened and encouraged to go forth. Help us all, Father, as a church to become known as a church built upon the word, built upon the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and that out of that, our efforts and labors are done in his name. As we go home now, I pray that you would find the mercy to give us some rest, but also much to contemplate. Give no rest to the sinner in this room. Bring that man or woman to their knees until they can cry out that Christ alone is Lord. We thank you, Father, for your grace, your mercy. We ask in your son's name, amen.